Hello, my name is Alex Rapkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurton and Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity and mental health law. And what I want to do with you now is walk through the conclusions and recommendations of the report published this morning, 19th of January, by the Joint Committee on the Draft Mental Health Bill. So just to orient us in time and space, this is a committee established jointly by the House of Lords, House of Commons, with representation from Conservative, Labour, Liberal Democrat and a crossbench peer, established to scrutinise the draft bill put forward by the government proposing amendments to the Mental Health Act. That draft bill was put forward um, it last year, uh, quite some time, I should say, after the independent review of the Mental Health Act reported in 2018. That independent review was chaired by Sir Simon Wesley. I should say I was the legal advisor to it. That independent review was commissioned, had been commissioned originally by then Prime Minister Theresa May to look at the functioning of the Mental Health Act and in particular to focus on why it seemed to be being used so disproportionately depending on one's uh, race and ethnic background. So re review reported 2018, government then took stock. There was a consultation uh, by the government uh, as to what should go into the draft bill or what should go into a bill. Government has put forward a draft bill. That draft bill has now been scrutinized. There's been lots of evidence heard by the joint committee, both in writing and oral evidence. The joint committee held a survey um, they also uh, undertook a private roundtable uh, with individuals identified as service users at a mental health trust. They've now produced a hefty report. I have to say a very impressive piece of work within a very short space of time. And I want to share with you now my screen and go through the conclusions and recommendations. So they've got a, a conclusion, uh, an, an initial one, just thinking about pre-legislative scrutiny, which we'll just skip briefly over. So, as they note, the draft bill has been widely welcomed by those heard from from the inquiry, contains important reforms through a consensual process. The committee welcomes the draft bill, would like to see it introduced in this session of Parliament. Importantly, though, they point out paragraph three, it's nearly 40 years old Mental Health Act, it's been amended multiple times, it's hard to use, it's incredibly complex. It is remains focused on coercive powers rather than patients' rights. And I really like this phrase, the draft bill with our proposed amendments with help, but should not be the end or even a pause in the process of reform of mental health legislation. I should make clear the review, when the review reported made clear, there are future directions of travel and here are confidence tests to think about in particular move towards more fused legislation. So in other words, legislation which fuses mental capacity and mental health legislation. Committee strongly endorsed that and they think about where the, could the direction of travel be. Looking from elsewhere and also thinking in advance of that, even when this legislation is introduced, assuming as we hope it is introduced, Men's Mental Health Act, continue to think of opportunities to think about um, amending the code of practice for thinking about beefing up the place of capacity. Very concerned, you can see here, effective handling of complaints. Government would really like, or a committee would really like 
better handling of complaints. I should say that is something which was also flagged recently by the Joint Committee on Human Rights in their inquiry into human rights in the care settings, better handling of thinking about complaints in, in the mental health setting. The government, or the, the, sorry, the committee rather, were really struck that there was no independent figure to advocate on behalf of those who are detained or likely to be detained or their families and carers. They identified there's a statutory role in other settings uh, for people like, that, for instance, the Children's Commissioner, Victims Commissioner. They recommend, and this is very interesting, it didn't come from a review, and it's a really important idea, it seems to me, the post of a statutory mental health commissioner. So being a voice at national level, working in conjunction with the CQC, for instance, to think about recommending um, reforming mental health law, tracking the implementation of reforms, advice and support to service users. So a watchdog, they say. I should say once upon a time, there was the Mental Health Act Commission, which sort of uh, uh, discharged some of these functions that got subsumed into the Care Quality Commission. I'm very strongly in favour of the idea of a mental health commissioner. I would say I would really like it also if it fulfilled some of the, the, the commissioner filled some of the functions of the Mental Welfare Commission in Scotland, which is it can be also a place where professionals who want a critical friend to go to to think, how can I do this? Professionals in Scotland to go to the Mental Welfare Commission. I would really like it if professionals too could go to the Mental Health Commissioner to say, I'm trying to do this right. Can you help me think this through? So the principles, turning to paragraph eight, the principles were a really central part of the review's work, really central. The government said, we don't think they can make their way onto the face of legislation. A lot of people uh, joined the course of the evidence process to the committee said, we don't see why not. The committee want them to be in primary legislation as opposed to a code of practice, so they simply can't be replaced or withdrawn. To ensure how they inform how the amended act operates in, in practice and be a legal and symbolic driver for the cultural change the drug bill is trying to bring about. They recognise that it may be complicated to retrofit principles. But they think they've identified a way. And just to remind us what the principles are, choice and autonomy, least restriction, therapeutic benefits, and the person is individual. And as we'll come on to later, they think there should be a further principle in relation to seeking to reduce the disproportionate use of the mental health act in relation to, or, or, on a frankly racist basis. So they think they've found a way and they think they think that the, the any replacement for section 118, which is where sort of principles find their way via code of practice at the moment, should be at the front of the act, front and centre, reflecting the central role in the Operation Mental Health Act. Make the legislation more accessible, better tell the story of what the act is trying to achieve. So I mentioned racial inequalities. They think it's important. List of matters must include respect for racial equality. This is, a, as they say here, this is a collective failure that racial inequality is getting worse. They then think through how, can, what else can we do? Improved data collection, the role of the commissioner, implementation plan for non-legislative programs. Importantly, they identify CTOs are particularly problematic in relation to uh, black and ethnic minority patients. Uh, they also seem to think, the committee think there really isn't no sensible evidence base to demonstrate their, their use. 
They go further than the review and say, just abolish CTOs for part two for civil patients. They do recognize there might be some evidence for CTOs for some patients on forensic patients, part three, but the evidence base is inconclusive. So they draft bill to include a statutory review and then a provision to abolish six months after that review, unless effect, in effect there's a proper case made. Then vitally thinking about resourcing and implementation. The review had been very clear that without resource, proper resourcing, nothing would happen. That's only become even clearer and a huge amount of evidence before the committee made that point very, very strongly. So they're really keen to make clear, we're not gonna make this work unless there's proper implementation. How can that be done? They then turn to thinking about changes in de de detention criteria recommended by the review to make it, well, the real point was to make it more transparent and more accountable. Uh, when people are being detained, in particular transparency and accountability about risk. The committee think they're going to only work and not lead to the inadvertent idea that someone may not receive care when they need it. In particular, there's adequate and accessible community-based alternatives to detention. They are really They've also been very disturbed about the idea that capacity has been misused to deny treatment to very ill and potentially suicidal patients. This is something I've been troubled about for a very long time. Chloe Beale, uh, gave very, a psychiatrist, gave very good evidence, very important evidence to the committee about this. Committee clearly struck by this. They want, they non-legislatively, the government, they want the government to know or want the government to let them know what's happening to prevent that. They want further criteria, further detailed changes to think about how the detention criteria are going to work. I'm not going to go through those in a great amount of detail, but you can see these paragraphs here. And then interestingly, they point out that they're troubled by the potential for disparity between part two civil patients and part three patients in the criminal justice system. They think that the changes in detention criteria should, should be the same for both. I can certainly see the point in that, that's very legitimate. It raises some very challenging, but rightly challenging questions about whether we approach patients who are within the criminal justice system differently to civil patients, and if so, why? Turning to learning disability and autism. So just to remind us, the independent review thought about learning, those autistic people and people with learning disability very troubled by the inappropriate uh, detention of individuals there, in particular where hospital is simply the wrong place. The independent review said we can identify a range of measures which would improve the situation for everybody, but in particular those with learning disability, autistic people. The review was troubled about the idea of simply excluding learning disability and autism statutorily from the act, particularly for the potential for unintended consequences. And because the review took the, review, the, the, the view that it wasn't established to think about all of those consequences, there should be work thinking across the piece. The government's draft bill proposes excluding learning disability and autism from the mental health act um, from the civil sections uh, simply for, um, sorry, I just managed to put back on the share, share screen, um, exclude it, save for assessment, 28 day period for assessment. 
they re- the, the committee welcome the direction of travel. They want, they think this could improve outcomes for the group in the long term, but they can produce counterproductive. They want a staged approach and to test the hypothesis, increasing community services will allow the care system to deal with this group of people, individuals effectively in the community, including in crisis situations. They are very troubled about the idea that there might be purple people learning disability, autistic people being detained under the MCA or through the criminal justice system instead, or being given an alternative mental health diagnosis to justify longer term detention. How do those, how are those risks mitigated in event, in addition to development of community services? So they think about, they really want to hear emphasizing review of building the right support. The milestones have to be met before commencement of parts of those bills that could remove learning disability and autism. In other words, to make sure there is proper support in the community so that individuals with learning disability or people with autistic people aren't at at inadvertent risk of effectively being diverted from uh, Section 3 into another piece of legislation if Section 3 is simply deleted. So in other words, making sure people can remain in the community. So there needs to be monitoring for people who are no longer detention, uh, detained under Section 3. Are they being sent to alternative routes? The committee think, actually, there are going to be situations where simply abolishing the ability to detain someone under the Mental Health Act with learning disability or an autistic person could be counterproductive and wrong. And they think a tribunal should be able to pre-authorize a period of detention. In exceptional circumstances, this would be very interesting and very unusual in England, not unusual in Scotland, in the sense that in Scotland, in many cases, a tribunal is involved in detaining, as opposed to England, where it's detained first, challenge afterwards. So this would be a radical change in terms of provision in England. I could certainly see the point in this. You could also, I have to say, start making the asking the question, well, why isn't this sort of provision available for other people with conditions which might not well, not, <laughs> well, not respond to long-term care in hospital or in respect of whom there might be circumstances where thinking, are we sure hospital's the right place? Why shouldn't a specialist tribunal be involved at the outset in every case with expertise in that particular condition? But obviously the focus at the moment is on learning disability and autism. This specialist tribunal is a very interesting proposal. I'm going to be fascinated to see what the government does in response. They then want to make sure the MCA and the Dolls slash LPS make sure that those couldn't be used in alternative routes. Have to be some way of making sure that individuals with learning disability, autistic people can't be detained for long periods of time in mental health units under the LPS or DOLS. It's going to be very interesting to see how that is worked out legislatively. Then they need to track through thinking, if they're going to do this in relation, if the changes to part three and part two detention criteria are made the same, they're going to have to think about how part three is used properly to make and make sure that there is proper support for people in prison. Then they go through about the 
a range of things in relation to recommendations uh, about care, education, treatment reviews. I'm not going to focus on that just now. They're really important. But they, what I particularly want to focus on is the particular risk of Section 117 aftercare being lost if people are removed from Section 3. What are the government going to do to make sure that there isn't inadvertent removal of people from support which is currently available? So that's where they get to in terms of learning disabilities and autism. Turning to children and young people, really important. Provisions in the draft bill rely heavily on consent, capacity and competence. The law is really complicated. They think the government should consult on the introduction of a statutory test for competency or child capacity for those under 16. Review thought that was important. Gut draft bill doesn't say anything. It simply says competence, which would leave it at uh, the, the case law developed. For my, from what it's worth, I think it's vitally important that there's proper statutory consideration of a statutory approach to pre-16 uh, competence. What is it that we think a young a child needs to have in order to make a decision? How do we think about their abilities to process information? Does it look like the functional part of the Mental Capacity Act? But for instance, without a requirement um, that there be a specific impairment giving rise to in inability to make a decision, that might not be quite so relevant to the mental health context, but might be relevant in other contexts. What about the presumption of capacity? Is there should be a presumption of competence pre-16? Well, there isn't. Government would need to think, or any statutory process would need to think about that. And they make it clear, wide-ranging, consider wider implications of this reform. And then, really importantly, make sure that legislation is being used to prevent or try and strengthen protections against children and young people being placed in inappropriate settings. Then patient choice, which featured very strongly in the independent review, really central feature in terms of trying to nudge the dial, trying to shift the dial away from coercion towards a model which is based insofar as possible as respecting what people are saying they want and what they don't want. But it is really important that whilst they say we think statutory care and treatment plans are very important, that they're going to be strengthened by having statutory advanced choice documents. Advanced choice documents featured very heavily in the review. The draft bill, as it's proposed, would amend the Mental Health Act to really importantly respond to a situation where somebody has made an advanced choice document setting out what they want or don't want. But it doesn't, doesn't, as it stands, provide a right to be supported to make one. And there's no statutory provision for that. So they think it is important, a statutory right for those who have been detained and should extend also to people with LD or autistic people who have been detained unless they, the carve-out changes. Record in a way that's accessible, digitally, usable crisis, quickly in crisis situations, and how important it is about the trust built up during the creation of a, uh, an ACD. So that needs to be done in relation with assistance of a support of a trained person independent of the service users treatment team. I personally think these things are vitally important and this process is vitally important. So turn to paragraph 53, the review had recommended that there should be an ability to appeal treatment decisions to the tribunal. 
there were concerns expressed, including to the uh, to the to the um, committee, John. There evidence that this would increase workload, but there's a kind of trade-off, isn't there? Measure could strengthen the patient's voice. What about workload? And also possibility between contentious conflicts between clinicians and tribunal judges. They think that they agree with the review. Slim down mental health tribunal should be able to consider it. They think, let's go with a pilot to see whether the workload's manageable. Tribunal's rules aren't, rules aren't compromised. They're very keen on the idea of nominated persons. I think everybody is basically keen on the idea of nominated persons. But how do we make sure that they are tracked through easily, sensibly and properly? And particularly, make sure that issues in relation to the interaction between nominated persons and, for instance, those with parental responsibility are properly thought through in relation to under 18s. That was flagged as something which perhaps hadn't been properly thought through in evidence to the committee. This is just really showing the benefit of pre-legislative scrutiny. They welcome opt-out advocacy for detained patients. They would really like um, opt-out advocacy to include informal patients once capacity has been, been built up. It needs to be specialist for people uh, learning disability and autistic people and culturally appropriate. So a statutory right to request culturally appropriate advocacy. It's hugely important to that, that, and that thing through how it's to be done properly. Turning to those concerned, concerned in criminal proceedings or those who have been sentenced, they recognise the force of the point that there needs to be an am amendment to the Act to allow people on to be conditionally discharged into the community subject to the deprivation of liberty. This is to address a Supreme Court decision called MM from several years ago, which said that can't happen, giving rise to the potential for people either to remain in hospital for longer than they should do, or to be out on rather peculiar long-term Section 17 leave. They recognise why the Act might need to be changed, but rightly, they're very worried it might be more than used and envisaged and disproportionately against black and ethnic minority patients. They think it should be, uh, they, they, they think there should be independent oversight earlier in the process and the tribunal should be involved. They also want there to be a statutory review to, uh, in relation to uh, the supervised discharge idea and expiry uh, of that, those provisions unless there's approval to another to make sure it's not being used and mis-overused in the same way we found CTOs to be overused. They really want to beef up the requirement for transfer for 28-day uh, uh, period for transfer from prison to hospital where a, paid, a person's mental health deteriorates, how to make sure that's actually done. They then heard a lot of evidence and a lot of concern about how on earth one meets a gap in relation to A&E. A lot of it is down to a legal gap. A lot of it's down to resources. They think they, there is a gap on the law. How do we think this through? There needs to be further consultation. They also point out, and I, I should say this is close to my heart, these bits here, there are gaps and ambiguities about the interface between Mental Health Act and Mental Capacity Act. They think there's some relatively minor changes which could be made, which could make that interface less painful. That would involve amending the MCA to pick up dolls and also LPS. So, 
concluding again and again, concerns about how the bill is going to play out in practice, but shouldn't take away from the broadly positive response or the sense of urgency about just getting on with it. So, and if the government's willing to strengthen them, the draft bill in the ways they've suggested can make an important and necessary contribution to addressing the problems the independent review was established to consider. So thank you for watching. I apologize for the fact I've now got a weird halo around me. That's the sun coming through. So I'm going to stop this recording now. But thank you for watching. Please make sure you look at the whole of the, the, the report and including the really interesting survey at the back and the very interesting graphic way in which the survey report has been uh, presented in terms of people's views of that, whether this is the right direction of travel, whether it's going to increase or reduce the potential for coercion. So thank you for your time.